The first time I saw that, I was laughing a lot. Good morning. If you don't know who I am, I am Matt Mosier. I'm the family minister, so I thought it might have been a little appropriate to uh, show a family video. Um, each family is unique. There's probably a lot of memories that came flooding to your mind about having to sit the kids on the couch, and when dad overthrows the board game, when he gets mad because he's losing, of course dads don't ever do that, neither do children. Um, when was the last time that you remember getting caught going into the cookie jar? Aiden. <laughs> Mine was last week, it's okay. Um, in our families, sometimes we create the in our families are where good and sometimes bad memories that are long-lasting are created, both the good and the bad. But one of the an example from my life was when me and my sister were sitting in a car, and my mom was inside talking to my dad at work, and of course, you know, it was it was okay. AC was on, um, and. <laughs> You know, I was like third grade. My sister was first, probably. So, of course, there was fighting. And I don't even remember what the conversation was about. All I know was that I ended up saying, I'm going to kill you. And then she's like, I mean, you know what that means. That's so like, chuk, chuk, lock and loaded. Mom's getting told. And so I was like, she's like, I'm going to tell mom. And I'm like, no, you're not. You shouldn't. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that I didn't say that. And she's like, I'm going to tell her. I'm like, I warned her again, and so then mom comes out, and guess who gets ratted on? Yes, you know, and you guys knowing me and who I am and how much of an angel I am, I, I of course, confessed and, and repented, and no, I, I lied to my mom, but I didn't lie to my sister. I'd, I told her that I was not going to tell, I told my mom that I didn't say that. And so my mom's hearing these two conflicting stories. And what do you do as a parent? Well, you both are in trouble until somebody comes clean. Yeah, I held out pretty long. My sister, she confessed, and she wasn't able to go to a birthday party. And the bad thing is, is I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't feel bad. I was, I mean, how good are we sometimes at, like, twisting things? I, told, I, was, I was good at twisting steadfastness and keeping my word in one way. And that did not, was not the good way. It's funny how good we are at this sometimes. Pride, selfishness, sinfulness, brokenness. Like, such, it's so there from a young age. And sometimes flows over into our lives now. I think that sometimes we, we do that knowingly, but I also think that sometimes we don't realize when we're doing that. And that's the hard part. So when we don't know, and we're like, okay, I'm, I'm doing good. When we, when we start using people and ideas and objects as, as idols, when we start putting them in places where we, that they're not intended to be, when we start looking to them 
and worshiping them, sacrificing time, energy. When we encounter Jesus as imperfect, broken, uh, idol-making people, it's not all the time, but it's, it's a part of our condition here in this world. And he meets us where we're at. He challenges us. It's like what we've been hearing on the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through Matthew 5 through 7, and there's a lot of stuff in there that's hard and challenging. And Jesus is like, hey, look, like, this is what it means to be a follower of me. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. And we encounter Jesus through the Bible. We encounter him through messages from Andy and Daryl. We encounter uh, Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And when we do encounter him, we have to make some decisions. Do we accept what he's teaching, or do we reject it? And the one thing with, with experiencing Jesus is that we never walk away the same. We can never unexperience Jesus. He stays there with us wherever we go on this journey. And, and on that journey, sometimes we experience he lets us know the idols in our life. He lets us know of some new area of brokenness that we either know of that we need to address or maybe that we don't know of and he's wanting us to address. Lately, God's been revealing an area of my brokenness um, that I was previously unaware of. And it may sound weird um, when I say it, but Stewardship is becoming an idol for me. That may sound like nice and holy, but it's, it's not. It, when preparing for this message uh, three weeks ago, I started getting hit with the realization that I had an idol problem in worshiping the God of money and the God of control. I thought I was being an extremely good steward. And it started off good. I was well-intended. I wanted to save money. I wanted to use the money that I had to glorify God. I still do. It hasn't changed. I wouldn't make certain purchases. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do certain things with my money. I would try and use it in a particular way that is intentional. And we, got, we, we do that. We give to the church. We uh, love others with our money. Life happens. Surprises come. Cars break. Windows fall down during rainstorms. Unexpected expenses come up. Finances get tight. And things started kind of losing control a little bit. And it wasn't going how I wanted. So I step up my stewardship game. You know. I think that's where it started happening. That's where it started. Money and control started becoming idols. Stewardship went from being a way to glorify God to becoming a God. Um, if you, I'm a visual learner, so I made a little PowerPoint right here. And if you click on the next slide, uh, you get to see how stewardship went from pointing to God and glorifying God to then taking the place of God and becomes stewardship. What do we, what is, what is the thing that fits in your arrow? Do you know of one? Andy preached a uh, 
a sermon that really was getting right to what Jesus addresses. Good things, but man, it really makes us realize areas that we can repent. Whole Sermon on the Mount teaches tough things like that. And so it's hard to stand up here and talk to you about my brokenness in some ways because, you know, I'm, it's, it's just really revealing. Um, but on the other side of the coin is it's kind of easy because I recognize that I'm not the only one that struggles. I know that you all probably have certain things that you're like, yeah, I know what my arrow is. Like, that turns into the God. Maybe, maybe you're not, maybe there's not something that's really sticking out, and that's okay too. It's not like, I have to have a problem. It's, hey, we're coming to Jesus, and and He's going to reveal what He he needs to in our lives. And so, here's some of the, here's some gods that sometimes come up it's fame, money, love, success, achievement, romance, food, entertainment, sex, and family. You surprised I said family? Family minister talking about family this morning, right? People listening to Jesus probably were a little surprised when he started saying some words that really might rub people the wrong way. Let's, let's read what he says. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Okay. How are we supposed to hate our family? Does that make any sense? It seems completely contradictory to what he says in other places. Check out Matthew 5, and it says, You have heard that it is said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This word, the second phrase right here, the, the first one goes back to Leviticus, Leviticus 19, I think it's verse 18. And it says, Love your neighbor, and talks about loving the Lord. Uh, but this second phrase, hate your enemy, isn't found in there. And what is likely to be is that these, that they it was kind of like a common saying, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And so Jesus is addressing this. He says, no, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Okay, so we're not supposed to hate. What about Mark 12? It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. So how do we make sense of Jesus saying, hate your family? I think, I think it comes to two possible explanations of, of Jesus' intention. Or maybe not even intention, but either he was contradicting, contradicting himself, knowingly or unknowingly, or there's something a little deeper going on. And taking it in the context complements what he's teaching. And I think it's that one that he's getting at. I think that he is, is saying something much, very profound that only using strong language can he 
communicate. And so usually we think of hating as a psychological despising. I have a couple examples that some of you guys might uh, feel. Um, I despise the Yellow Jackets. <laughs> Marvin is feeling very strongly about that. I despise the Bulldogs. Oh, ouch. Oh, this is stepping on, stepping on claws because we don't have toes. Uh, dogs don't have toes. But Lee might be more siding with the, despising the Yellow Jackets after his five stings and running with them this week. He should. Sorry, Lee. That's, that's rough. Don't get stung by yellow jackets. That's never fun. In Luke 14, when Jesus says, hate your, your family, I don't think he's speaking about this despising, this psychological hate towards another. Um, I think he's carrying this idea, uh, the, it, he's communicating this idea of disowning, renouncing, rejecting. And you're like, Matt, how's that any better? Uh, I, I think it does get better because I I think he's using a hyperbole, which is a fancy word for saying, making an extreme statement to make a point. That he's making a statement that's going to say, hey, what is he saying? Because it's really easy to say, oh, you know, so, uh, like something a lot softer. And people, it just kind of flies over their head. If you say this, people actually have to think. And so in Matthew 10, 34 through 37, I think helps bring out what Jesus is saying. He says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to this earth. I do not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Those who want to be disciples of Jesus have to make a decision. Am I going to be more committed to Jesus or my family? Jesus, I don't think, is saying, hate your family, despise them, reject them, disown them, throw them to the curb. I think he's saying, hey, love me. In, in comparing your love for me and your family, there should be no comparison Nobody should have the spot that I have in your life, or should have. I think that's the point that he's getting at, is the disciple must be loyal to Jesus over all people. I think this goes beyond just family, but to friends, to other people, to famous people, to anybody, insert here any name, that we must be loyal to Jesus and more committed to him. I think it's initially easy to, to say that this isn't a problem for us. If someone asked me if I worshipped my family, I would pretty quickly say no. Like, that's just weird. Like, I don't worship my family. But if we start looking at the, what we do and the time we spend and all that we sacrifice, who is in the center of our life? Again, I, I want to make sure that I communicate. Is loving your family is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. So we're looking at the things in tension saying, okay, how do I discern what is loving 
our family in a healthy way and it, with, with God first. The Barna Group did a study in 2007, and this was surprising to me. Um, it said seven out of ten people chose family over God. And this is what that broke down into. 33% said, and that was one out of three, chose their entire nuclear family, so extended family. 22% chose their spouse as, as coming, the most important relationship in their life. 17% chose their children. 3% parents, two friends. And 19% named God, Jesus, Trinity, or Allah. Uh, and this was a it was a study, obviously, that didn't just apply to Christians. Um, but it was really interesting that more likely, it was more likely for people over 40 to choose the last one than those who were younger than 40. If you were asked to choose the most important relationship in your life, what would you say? I think if we truly wanted to love our family the best that we could, I think it, it just, it comes from loving God first. It comes from putting him in the center. I, I came across this illustration that I found really helpful. Our life is like a bicycle wheel. And if we, or we seek to put God first, he's like the center hub. And you know a bicycle wheel. If you don't have a center hub, all the spokes which are the relationships in our lives, they have nothing to stick to. It's chaos. It's every, like, you cannot use a wheel without spokes, without that tension, without some, something being in the center. And, that, and God is that for us. If we have him at the center of our lives, all the relationships fall in place. All the, there's so much more healthiness. There's, you, you're driving the bike becomes way easier because you actually have a tire to use. Rather than trying to be on the two, like, forks. That God makes relationship and experience in this world so much, makes so much more sense out of it. Relationally and otherwise. And so, um, loving our family and others is a good thing. Jesus tells us to do that. And, and when the relationship goes from being the arrow and glorifying God to becoming the centerpiece of our life, I think that's when things start getting out of whack. I think, and this is the questions that I, I ask when, when thinking about all of this, is who completes us? Does God complete us? Or do our families? Who do we turn to? Do we love Jesus more? Are we committed to him more? Or do we love our families and do they come before him? Jesus makes some huge claims on our lives and, and it costs a lot. And he goes on to talk about those costs. And in Luke 14, he says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able to, with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off. 
and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you, have, you cannot be my disciples. Jesus is saying, like, in doing something, like building a house or going to war, there's a beginning and an end. There's a desire to build a house, and then the completed, the finished house. There's a, there's a want to win a war, so then the, only, the end goal is being victorious. A lot of times we start with a desire, with a want in our lives, and then it ends in a completed task. And then he applies this to discipleship. He says, I'm going to turn my page. He's, he, what he's getting at is he's trying to get his audience to recognize that all things cost something. And discipleship is included in that. And what does discipleship cost? What does he say it says it costs? It says it costs everything. Um, and this is the second thing he's getting at is he says, uh, a, disciple of, a disciple must be loyal to Jesus over all things. He is not just saying it costs everything. And there's some other translations that help bring out what, what he's saying a little bit more. The ESV says, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The, and the New King James Version says, Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's this idea of giving up all of our possessions, forsaking, not counting them as ours. Jesus is not saying that you can't possess things, but they cannot possess you. They cannot be Lord over your life. They cannot take the centerpiece. Just like what we do with with people sometimes, we can't do that with material objects, or even ideas. The craziest thing, I think, in all of this uh, is that sometimes when we, they do take that spot, like, they run our life, not Jesus. We look to them for security, not Jesus. We are who they say we are, or what it says we are. They start defining who we are. The hardest thing is when we are unaware of it, and then we become aware of it. And in that becoming aware, we, what I was talking about earlier, is we make that decision. What are we, how are we responding to Jesus' teaching? Are we having a hard time? Are we wrestling with it? I think that could be a sign that an idol is in our life. And I think it also could be a sign of just wrestling through what belief is in new ways. I think that if we just outright reject what Jesus is saying, that's a pretty significant sign that we're, we have something that we're not willing to give up. and That is a little God in our life. God, little g. I think that sometimes we have a desire to give Jesus more of us, but if we're honest, like, it's been a struggle for a long time, and we get really frustrated, and we want to give him more, but it's just hard. We want to give over the idols, but how? So how do we give up the idols in our life? First, I think it starts with 
taking them out. If you have trouble with something and you know it and you're aware of it or you're just becoming aware, the first thing to do is saying, okay, I'm going to take this idol and move it. Take it off the throne. Do things that intentionally, like, stop it. If it's money, like, you know, one of the best ways of, of dealing with money is giving it away. Jesus says that to the rich young ruler. He says, look, like, you ha- you've been doing all these good things, but you still have an idol of money, of power. Take, take, your, take your possessions and sell them and give it to the poor. That's hard. And Jesus responds to each of us uniquely. And so when we have these idols, what are we to do? And we, we find the ways to take them and dethrone them. But the thing we can't do is, is not replace it. We can't just leave it out of the throne empty. But that we have to intentionally put Jesus there. And that's the second thing. We intentionally put Jesus in the center. Because idols will always be replaced. This could be a really Debbie Downer of a message. And to clarify, I'm not talking about Debbie because she is such an encourager. She, she encourages me a lot, and I appreciate that. But if we, if we look at discipleship as this thing that's like always telling us and like tearing us down, that can be really frustrating. And I, and I want to encourage you this morning, because I, I think that discipleship is much better than, than idol worship. It, it, that is not the primary focus of discipleship. It is becoming who Jesus calls us to be. It is becoming who he says we are. But I think sometimes it can be hard to see that. And so I want to remember, remind you of truths for the journey, things to remember on the journey. And the first is that discipleship is free but costs everything. Here's the easiest and the hardest thing about Christianity is that you, can, you have to do nothing to receive it. It is a gift. It is something that Jesus offers you, and you don't have to do anything for. He says, come as you are, and it is yours. At the same time, it is one of the hardest things, because it costs everything. It costs our lives. It requires all of us, all of our lives, every single part, all of our commitment, all of our faithfulness. And it's hard to do that and give up everything, especially because when we trust in, in ourselves and other things and other people. And that's why the second thing is Jesus is trustworthy. And we, we need to remember this because we are following somebody who is trustworthy. We can trust him with our lives. It is, it is essential to know this because, well, let's be honest, when we are trusting in, in money or people or anything else, you fill in the blank with what it is in your life, if we trust that to give us security, to give us hope, to give us that sense of of fulfillment, if we take that off the throne, you know what's going to happen? Is we're going to sit there, we're going to be vulnerable, we're going to be hopeless, and we're going to feel like, how is Jesus even here? How is Jesus, if he's Lord of my life, why am I feeling like this? And that may not always be the case, but that is often the case when we're trying to dethrone an idol. And this is where discipleship is hard because we have to trust Jesus in action sometimes before the feeling comes. 
It's one of those things that we learn through experience. We learn to trust, just like, just like in relationships, we learn to trust by experiencing that faithfulness, that trustworthiness that Jesus brings to the table. And when we are going, when we're sick, when we're going through tough times, we're, we're going through good times. When we put our trust in Jesus, he's going to show up. He may not show up in the ways that we want him to or that we think he should. But if we're patient and weigh on him and keep our eyes on him, he's going to come through. He's going to show us that he is trustworthy in some great and unexpected ways. The third thing I want you to remember is to have grace on yourself and keep striving. Have grace on yourself and keep striving. Another way of saying that is recognize the bad and keep striving towards the good. In this world, there will always be sin and we'll always have something that we're struggling with. And it's so easy, and I, I was experiencing this week a little bit. I was just frustrated, like, why is, why is this thing still in my life? Why is this thing, why is it so hard for me? Why am I, I'm just, like, it can be really easy to get downcast and, like, frustrated, sad. We, and whether that's with things that are simple or even just aren't, there's, we need some encouragement. Like, we have to have grace on ourselves because Jesus gives us that grace. And we live into who we are, and, and Jesus says that we, we are his. And he offers us so much. And so we have to even do that for ourselves and listening to others, too. And then we keep going forward because we, we have somebody who is trustworthy who is going to be there with us. And so discipleship is a lifetime of growing, and it means that we constantly are becoming aware of new ways that we're broken and new ways that we're becoming. And this is where discipleship isn't easy, but it's worth it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think, gives a really good perspective on discipleship. He says, and if we answer the call to discipleship, where will it lead us? What decisions and partings will it demand? To answer this question, we shall have to go to him. For only he knows the answer. Only Jesus Christ, who bids us follow him, knows the journey's end. But we do know that it will be a road of boundless mercy. Discipleship means joy. There's so much to be experienced in the joy of discipleship. It's costly. It is costly discipleship. It's not cheap. We just don't get something and, and ha- don't have to give up anything. It, it isn't always easy, but it's worth it at the journey's end. So what does discipleship look like for you right now? Are you unsure of Jesus? Are you wrestling with this idol? Are you wrestling with giving him your entire life? Are you wrestling with just giving him a specific part? Are you frustrated because there's just something that's there and it won't go away? What, what, where are you with Jesus? Do you need encouragement? Do you need prayer? I think there's several things that we can do here right now. Um, and I think there's some things that we do outside this door. And that's where it come into addressing the idols in our lives. But right here, right now, I think there's two things that we can do. I think one, that we can pray for each other. And so 
what I want to do here in this, in this next portion is that if you need prayer, come up here to me. If you're, or in the back, we'll have, uh, there'll be an elder. Or even just turn to each other and ask for prayer. We're not meant to do this journey alone. And so I, I want to encourage you not to do that. I want to encourage you to reach out. Uh, the second thing is, is let's recognize God as our center, as our Lord, as our Savior. And let's worship him. Let's worship God. Uh, so if the band could, are we doing, we're doing a song, right? Yeah. If, if, when the band comes up, please seek out in prayer or in worship. And uh, let's, let's go to God and each other. Father, we, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the opportunity to experience the joy of discipleship. And that joy is not always an easy road. That joy is not always a... Uh, a road without struggle. But we ask that you be with us, that you point us in the direction that you give us the strength to walk. To walk with you and to walk with each other. That we may help each other as we take new steps and, and relearn how to take the steps in offering you more of our lives. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.